if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 14. So like 100 years ago, back when we were having services in our building, we, when we started the year 2020, which again, was roughly like a million years ago, uh, we set out to, the, the goal, the, the, the preaching goal that I had set out for, for 2020 was that we would go through the entire book of Genesis for the year. And then, you know, some weird things happened. And it, for, for a little while, at least, when this whole thing first began, it felt like maybe that's not, maybe we don't need to just proceed as planned. Maybe we need to stop and acknowledge where we are and what's going on and like how, how we're sort of processing all these things. And so we stopped the book of Genesis and we did the book of Philippians, thinking that by the time Philippians was over, we'd be able to just like reset and go back to normal and just jump right back into Genesis. Well, we finished Philippians last week and we are still doing this. So... We're just going to, rather than me try and find another like interlude series to do, we're just going to go back into Genesis. We will finish Genesis in the year 2020, so help me. So we're going to jump back into Genesis. I'm going to do a really quick recap just because, again, it's been, a lot has happened. We, we've had a lot to process since the last time we talked about Genesis. So the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are kind of this prologue, this prelude to um, a, a lot of the other stories that are going to come after. They're, they're, they're kind of big scope, scale types of stories about um, the nature of evil and free will and what it means to be who we were created to be. So there's a lot of like grand, big grand narratives that occur from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. And then in Gen Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a character, to, to an individual by the name of Abram. And from Genesis 12, for a while, we begin to follow the story of Abram. And then the rest of Genesis will deal with the descendants of Abram. So at, at some point, we'll deal with Abram's son, Isaac, and then Abram's grandson, Jacob, and then later on, Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, and all of his brothers. So now we're still dealing with Abram. And the last time we talked about Genesis, we, we looked at what is possibly one of the most troubling stories in the book of Genesis, which is really saying something. Actually, not one of the most troubling stories, three of the most troubling stories, because this is a story that repeats itself three, uh, three times in the book of Genesis. And it's a story about how Abram goes into a city and he's worried about his own safety. And so he tells his wife, Sarah, hey, if anybody asks, tell them you're my sister because I don't want to die. And so he does this twice. And then his son, Isaac, later on does that again. So we're already, we're given some mixed messages about Abram because the first thing we're told about Abram in Genesis 12 is that Abram's job is to be a blessing in the world. He is told I will, by God, God says, I will make your name great and you will go, you will be a blessing. And then the very next thing we see is Abram doing something that is really not great. And so we're sort of left with this kind of dissonant sense of, so am I supposed to like Abram or am I not supposed to like him? I don't know how to feel about this particular character. So this is the guy that we're supposed to be following for a little while in the book of Genesis. So that's where we're at with it. So far, the things that we've learned about Abram, not super great, but we're about to go into Genesis chapter 14 and we're going to kind of keep dealing with the story of Abram, but we also have to deal with the story of Abram in the context of the world around him, because he doesn't just live in a vacuum. He lives in, in a world where there's lots of different pockets of people and lots of different like miniature civilizations that exist and cities and kingdoms. And, uh, and, and so Abram, we're told, has, all, has left the place where he like, is loyal to and he calls home. So Abram, in terms of like a nationality, in terms of like a citizenship standpoint, he doesn't really have a home. There's, there's no like major loyalty that he has to any one particular tribe other than his own group of people. But here's the thing. A war breaks out. So when a war breaks out and you have no tribe people alliances, what do you do? 
So in Genesis chapter 14, we see the beginning of this war. So in Genesis chapter 14, by the way, if you're on our webpage, uh, collectedchurch.net, just our homepage, um, below the video, below all the links, you'll, you'll find all the passages of scripture if, if you're there. If you're on the Facebook page, I assume you can go to like biblegateway.com. We're looking at the um, new, new International Version, and so if you want to follow along in the version we're using, you can do that. There's a lot of other versions if you like those too. Anyway, Genesis chapter 14. <clears throat> it says, at the time when... The names, by the way, that I'm going to have to read today is out of control. So at the time when Amraphel, I, I practiced this and I'm totally blanking. So at the time when Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of, <clears throat> excuse me, Elisar, Kedorlamur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings, it, it, it's like, it sounds like a test that I just utterly failed. So in verse two, it says, these kings went to war against, now here's another group of names, so those are some kings, and it says these kings went to war with some other kings, and those other kings were Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, Shemaver, king of Zeboim. How many of us wish we lived in a place called Zeboim? How, don't you wish you could write that on the return address every time you send out a Christmas card from Zeboim, Texas, or whatever? Uh, so Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the Valley of Sadim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedorlamar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So the main picture here that's being drawn is you have these four kings that sort of have been maybe kind of taking advantage of the rest of the people. Maybe these are the strongholds in the area. And it says at a certain point, these other four kings who maybe rule smaller territories didn't like being pushed around by the, by the tougher kings. And so they decide... After 12 years of this, we can't take it anymore. And so they decide to rebel. So there's this massive, like, what, what I'm sure felt like a global, like a world war type of situation in this region. And everybody starts going to war with everybody. So, by the way, if you're just interested in the historicity of this, according to archaeological surveys, there's, there is evidence that there was, at this time and in this place in the world, a relatively well-developed civilization or, or a... Um, or a group of relatively well-developed civilizations in this part of the world during the Middle Bronze One period. But at a certain point, there seems to have been some catastrophic event that systemically wiped out every single thing in its past. And the catastrophic event could very well be a massive war. So theoretically, according to some archaeological surveys, there, there were these, these civilizations that were doing pretty well. But at a certain point, there, there must have been this massive war or some other like major catastrophic event that took all of these well-developed and continually developing civilizations and just like wiped them all off the face of the earth. This is like a again a catastrophic event. So that is theoretically what we're seeing happen here in, at the beginning of Genesis 14. Now again, Abram isn't part of any of these tribes in any sort of official capacity. Abram is staying out of it. Abram is Switzerland, so he has no dog in this fight. He has no vested interest in who wins any of the conflict. And so it looks like Abram's just going to not do anything. But then if you continue reading through Genesis 14, there's a raid on a city called Sodom. Not the last time we're going to hear about the city of Sodom. And Abram's nephew Lot is taken prisoner. So in Genesis 14, Abram is getting the news that Lot is, or in Genesis, yeah, Genesis chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 13, Abram is getting the news that his, that a family member of his has, has become a prisoner of war. And so then it says, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, 
all of whom, again, it's like they're messing with us with these names, all of whom were allied with Abram. So even though he's out of it, Abram has some, some sort of like military political alliances. And it says, when Abram heard that his relative had been, t- had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men, that's a very specific number, born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. So if you're trying to like locate this on the map, this is, Damascus tells us this is near, like this is in, in the region where Syria currently is. So it says, he, Abram, recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So this is kind of an interesting kind of situation. And, and just sort of as an aside, this was bound to come up as, as we kind of go on. Uh, there's lots of violence in the Bible and beginning in the book of Genesis. And, and this seems to be, Genesis 14 seems to be the first place where violence is, is potentially at least framed as some sort of positive act. So far, all the violence we've seen has been negative. If you look back at uh, Genesis chapter 3, when um, Cain kills Abel, and you have later on, you have like Lamech, and you have other sorts of acts of violence, up to this point, the violence has been roundly condemned, sort of by, by the narrative. Here, though, is this interesting, and this is where it becomes kind of tricky and, and difficult to, to deal with at kind of like a black and white sort of level, because this is sort of the first place where you find violence being done, and the violence, at least through the eyes of the narrator, or through the eyes of Abram at least, it seems like the violence is um, justified in some sort of, or, or it's framed as justified, which for a lot of us, it's like, yeah, that's right. That's what we do. We have to you know fight fire with whack fire. But for others of us, we, we hear that, and there's a little bit of dissonance, because later on, when we're reading the words of Jesus, we hear things like, blessed are the peacemakers, and put away your sword, because whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. And so there seems to be a lot of nonviolent rhetoric coming from the Jesus movement, but here in these older books, we have stories in which, at least some of the time, the violence is not framed in an overtly negative way. So that is troubling for lots of us, myself included, and... The, the violence, here's the thing, though, and we will get, we'll have to deal with this more because the violence is all over the place in the book of Genesis. So this, this is the first time we're going to see, like, quote-unquote, justified violence, but it won't be, won't be the last. So we'll have to get back into this at some point. But I just felt like we needed to acknowledge that that is part of the story here. But the violence, as, as far as our, the, the thing that we're talking about here today, the violence is actually sort of a secondary part of what makes this story important. But I did need to acknowledge it because it does reflect a reality of the times. Because... Whether we like it or not, whether whether the, the people who are telling the story like it or not, in the ancient Near East at this time, war is an ever-present reality. War is it's part of the of the landscape. And in fact, if we had a document from this time, from the ancient Near East, that told the story of an ancient people, and there was absolutely no violence at all, if there was no war or conflict, or there was always war and they just happened to always be able to stay out of it no matter what, that would feel like a that would not feel like a, like a document we could rely on very well because that it, it would feel disconnected from reality this was it this was sort of just a reality of the time there was war constantly there were there were tribes and kingdoms and pockets of people and civilizations who were constantly warring over um either territory or goods or or some other some some other thing that that two different groups of people wanted with conflicting interests. So war is it's just part of the landscape at the time. So it's really difficult to sort of separate war from these stories because war is it's just part of the world that they were living in. So Abram, like I said, for a while at least, it seems like 
he's he's trying to stay out of it. But there's almost this weird, like, Bruce Willis kind of scene where Abram is not in the war, but then somebody comes and tells him, like, we need you in the war because your nephew has been taken hostage. And it's almost like this, you know, you know, like those movies where like the guy, he, he's old and he's, he's seen some things and he's decided like he's out of the game. But then somebody comes and tells him like, yeah, well, we need you for one last job because your nephew's going to die. He's like, okay, I'm coming in for one last job. So it feels a little bit like that. Um, that. That's where this trope comes from, I guess. If you've ever seen a movie where that happens, it started in Genesis 14. So anyway, that's what's going on here in this story. So Abram goes in and he's got his 318 guys and they go in and they're, uh, they succeed and they, they rescue Abram's nephew. They rescue the people who are with him and they bring back a lot of goods, a lot of the spoils of war. So then, and here, here's where the story actually gets interesting. Up to this point, it's sort of kind of the setting that all the rest of this is, is set up against. And we have to understand where this is coming from in order to understand like how, like the, the device that gets us to the next part of the story, which is really the part of the story that we we're going to focus on. So in verse 17, so right after Abram, like, rescues everybody and brings back all the people. In verse 17, it says, After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlamer, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaddah. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and blessed, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So at face value, this sounds totally fine, right? Abram comes back from some sort of battle, some sort of war. He's greeted by a foreign king, and then he's greeted by a priest, and the priest tells him, not just a priest, actually, a king and a priest, comes out, offers him bread and wine, gives him a blessing, and Abram gives the priest 10% of the spoils of war. So this all sounds fine. Here's the problem, though. Here's, here's why this story would be jarring to its original audience. We have no idea who this guy is. This guy, Melchizedek, who just shows up out of nowhere, he's never been mentioned before in the book of Genesis. We have no idea where he came from. And he's never mentioned again, outside of some uh, Hebrew poetry that we're going to look at in a minute. Um, you, some of y'all just got really excited. It was like, we're going to look at some Hebrew poetry in a minute. But... We have no idea. Like, Melchizedek has no other role in the story other than the thing that we just read. He's, he's not a character who came from anywhere. He's not a character that shows up later. So, who is this guy? We are told he's a king of, of a territory that Abram is not a part of. He's a priest, and he blesses Abram. Now, scholars and historians have gone round and round about this for a long, long time over the identity and the question of who is Melchizedek. This is like books have been written about the question, who is Melchizedek? So there's two possibilities about who this guy is. Melchizedek is either possibility one, he's a priest of the same God that Abram follows. And at face value, in the English translation, that's what it looks like, because he comes out and he blesses Abram in the name of God Most High. So if you're reading this in English, you think like, sounds great. I'm, <laughs> I'm fully on board. This makes no sense. There's no dissonance at all in, this, in the way this is translated for me. So that's the first option, that Melchizedek is somehow a priest of the same order of, of the God that Abram follows. This would have been pretty surprising to the original readers of the story because Melchizedek is not related to Abram. And this story is so new and the, the tribe that Abram is a part of is so young that nobody else, as far as we know, on the map is already a follower of the same God that Abram follows. So we're told that Melchizedek is a king from a different place and a priest of a different order. So the possibility that Melchizedek is here to bless Abram in the name of Abram's own God is actually kind of unlikely in terms of like the historicity and the geography of what like all the, all the surrounding context 
of what's going on. That's the first possibility. That's what some people are going to argue. The second possibility, which actually seems probably a little bit more likely, is Melchizedek is blessing Abram on behalf of his own Canaanite gods. And you might be thinking, yeah, but it says on behalf of God most high. It does. It does say that. You're not wrong. But that's the English translation. Here's the thing. Melchizedek in, in um, I totally love Hebrew. The Bible, the book of Genesis was written in the, in, in, the, in the language of Hebrew. Thanks for being here, everybody. So in Hebrew, the phrase God most high is the phrase El Elyon. In this ancient dialect, El is the Canaanite god of the sky. Now, in other parts of the book of Genesis and other Hebrew texts, the, the prefix El is often used to describe this god that Abram follows in phrases like El Shaddai or El Roy. So we have other iterations of this god being described as El fill in the blank. So often it, it's, it's a Canaanite term that refers to the sky god, but sometimes this language can get co-opted. To, it, would, it would get borrowed and used as a way to also describe Abram's God. However, Elion is also the name of a different Canaanite God. So either, and this is why translators have such a hard time with this, either they're taking this language about other gods and they're borrowing it to use it about Abram's God, or Melchizedek is a Canaanite priest and he's blessing Abram in the name of his own gods. And what Abram does not do, so, okay, let me back up actually. Either way, the point is the same. It's either Melchizedek is blessing Abram on behalf of Abram's God, or Melchizedek is blessing Abram in the name of his own Canaanite gods, and Abram is receiving the blessing and offering some sort of gift in return. Either way, the point is the same. So again, like people have been arguing about this forever. But the point becomes, or regardless of how this sort of shakes out, the point is the same, which is Melchizedek, by all standards and practices, by all, for all intents and purposes, Melchizedek is an outsider to Abram. He is definitely a tribal outsider because we are already told he's the king of a different territory. He is possibly a religious outsider because we don't know what order of his priesthood is or what the order of his priesthood is. So Melchizedek is an outsider to Abram. And yet Melchizedek blesses Abram and Abram receives the blessing with gratitude. Then he gives Melchizedek 10% of the spoils of battle. He essentially gives him a tithe of everything that he brought back from war. So uh, any way you slice it, the story to the original readers, the story would have been pretty challenging to the people of its day. The ancient Near East is a deeply tribal place. You don't go around blessing people in the name of gods that aren't theirs. And if you are a worshiper of other gods, you don't just open-handedly receive blessings from people who worship different gods than you do. This is, this is almost unheard of in the ancient Near East. So any way you slice it, this is an odd sort of scene because Melchizedek is a, is a king, not of a region that Abram lives in. He's a king of Salem or Salem, however you pronounce that. And what we're told here is he blesses Abram and Abram receives the blessing. Now, I, I mentioned before, Melchizedek doesn't show up in the, in the narrative at all for the rest of the scriptures. However, he does show up in some of the poetry. So jump over to Psalms chapter 110. So in Psalm 110, uh, this is a Hebrew poet, and he writes this. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, and then he says, so this is God speaking to a person. And it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies like a footstool for your feet. 
The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on I'm sorry, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. So essentially, God is saying to this person, um, I will give you some sense of um, sorry, an elephant just landed on the, the roof. So uh, anyway, it says, Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So again, like at face value, we could be reading this and blow right by it. But here, like if you're someone who's reading this, you're thinking, whoa, 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 the order of Melchizedek? What are you talking about? Because there is no order of Melchizedek. How can somebody be in the order of Melchizedek if, because to say that someone is in the order of something, you have to know where Melchizedek came from and who came after him. For there to be an order, there has to be some sort of line of succession. There is no line of succession. We have no idea, again, who preceded Melchizedek and who came after Melchizedek. So when the poet, or when God says through the poet, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek, what are you talking about? How can anybody be in the order of Melchizedek? Because Melchizedek has no order. Maybe that's the point. Maybe the point of this is the whole thing is expanding. Maybe the story of Melchizedek, maybe the thing that makes it interesting, isn't just like the head-scratching question of like, where did this guy come from? Maybe that's the point. The point is we don't know where he came from. We don't know what happened to him after. But we do know that when he does show up, he offers a blessing. And the person he offers a blessing to receives it. And that's all we need to know about Melchizedek. Maybe the whole point in, in Psalm 110, the poet is saying the whole thing is getting bigger. The role of priest isn't what we expected it to be. We cannot limit who does and doesn't get to do sacred work in this world. That's the whole idea here. The order of Melchizedek means you don't have to have been born in the right family and you don't have to have gone through the right like channels. You don't have to have been a part of the right movements in order to be someone who does some kind of holy, sacred work. Look at Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19, there's so much, there's so much we need to talk about here. And there's no way we've got enough time to talk about everything. But in Exodus chapter 19, this is immediately following the event of the Exodus. You have this group of people who have been slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt, and now they've been brought out of Egypt. And now the question is like, well, who are we now? Because we, we were slaves and we were part of this other system that had its own gods and it had its own rituals and had its own sort of, sorts of rhythms and norms and identities. And so now we, are, we have none of those things. So who are we now? So one of the first things you expect is for the whole thing to kind of develop, to, to kind of their, for them to develop their own system of religious practices, which they definitely do, and their own order of priests, which they definitely do. However, what you would expect is, here are the religious practices, here are the people who are the priests, and here is where everybody else will be. And again, there is some of that, but there's also this very strange language that shows up in Exodus 19. So in Exodus 19, God is speaking to this man named Moses, and it says, then Moses went up to God, in verse 3, it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. A kingdom of priests? No, you will be a kingdom and you will have priests. That's what you're supposed to say. But it doesn't say that. It says you will be a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? A priest shows the world 
what their God is like. A priest, it is the job of a priest to, to enter the world and do sacred, holy work. And this says, here's your new identity. Yeah, you're going to have all the structures, you're going to have all of the, the systems in place, but also all of you at some level are priests. You're all going to do sacred, holy work. Then uh, if you jump all the way over to the other side of the Bible and look at the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, you, have, you have this one of the early leaders in the early Jesus movement, and he's writing to a group of people, and he borrows some of this Exodus language. So in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, it says, but you, he's writing to the church, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. So this writer, Peter, says to this group of people, listen, if you're a part of this movement, you're a part of a priesthood. Once you weren't a people, and now you are a people. Once, you, once, once there was no collective, like, unifying idea of who you were meant to be, but now there is one. You are a priesthood. Every single person, Peter's saying, everyone who gets a hold of this letter, you're a priest. You have the power to do sacred, holy work. It seems like the natural trajectory of the whole story is to expand how we think about who can and cannot do sacred work. So this is, the, this is what we mean when we talk about the order of Melchizedek. What is the order of Melchizedek? It's, it's the idea that everybody can do sacred work. You have the power to do some kind of sacred, holy, life-giving work in the world around you. Right now, there are people, we can all think of people who are doing some kind of priest-like work. Think about the medical professionals who are showing up to work every day in the parts of the country where this virus is the worst. And you have people every single day showing up and sitting with people as they struggle for air and as they die. And they're sitting with family members after they've lost someone. And they're sitting with them and they're trying their best to say, you are not alone. I've heard, I've heard so many stories of um, nurses and doctors who will hold up the phone for someone before they have to be intubated so that they can tell, tell somebody that they love them. That is sacred, holy work. That is the work of a priest. You have the capacity. You, you, have, you are empowered to do sacred, holy work. Think about your kids' teachers. We were, um, our, our, towards the end of the school year, our kids had like a, like a Zoom church or school assembly. And they had like all the teachers uh, got an opportunity to say something encouraging to each one of their students, which I, I would imagine would have been really, really difficult considering like how, you know, the last part of the semester went. But um, to, to listen to these teachers, like speak kind, encouraging words to our kids over Zoom, you know, as, as we were all huddled around a laptop and watching our kids be, be spoken to as if they matter by somebody who doesn't live in this house, you know, and to give them a sense of it's going to be okay and pe there are people here who care about you and you, you, are, you are a special, sacred person and you matter a whole lot to me. Like that is, that is profoundly holy work. Um, and so we, we watched our kids' teachers serve as priests to our kids um, for the last part of the school year. 
And, and, and of course, obviously there's a lot of talk right now about like, oh, there, there are certain professions and there are certain types of roles in the world that maybe we've undervalued and maybe, maybe we haven't spent enough time elevating to a certain extent. And now we're seeing like in an emergency, there, there are certain types of people, there are certain professions, there are certain personality types that we really rely on. And what, what are we saying when we talk about that? We're talking about people who do sacred work, people who have been acting like priests for a lot longer than we realize. Um, or like people who right now are, are doing everything they can to make sure none of their employees get laid off. And they're, they're staying up until 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning, every single night, working with their, their bank, working with their accounting firm, working with whoever they can, just because the, the thought of having to, to lay somebody off right now is more than they can bear. And so they are burning the candle at both ends. They're doing every single thing that they can just to keep everybody on the payroll. That is sacred work. And sometimes it, sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not, but the work is sacred. They're trying to make sure that nobody goes hungry right now. There, there are people all over the place right now who are doing priest-like work. Um, people who are protesting systemic racism and police brutality right now, people who are putting their bodies between the most vulnerable citizens and people who have all the power, People who stand between um, between a crowd of people and a tear gas canister, and who say, "We will not, we we will not stand for this anymore." People who will look at um, other people who have power and riot gear and weapons and say, "This is unacceptable," and we will not stop until something is better. That is holy, sacred work. That is the work of a priest. So it, all through the scriptures, what we find is there are people all over the place who are invited into the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek is anybody who does the work of a priest, who isn't part of the tradition, of, who, who hasn't sort of been given like a license and who hasn't been told like, okay, well, this, these are the special people who have the priestly powers, and then there's everybody else who has all the regular stuff. No, no, no. The whole trajectory of the scriptures is, you know, anybody can be part of the order of Melchizedek. Anybody is invited to be a priest. Anybody can show up with something sacred to offer the world. Uh, take a look at Luke chapter 9. Um, in Luke chapter 9, there's this scene in verse uh, 46. This is an argument. This is Jesus. Jesus is sort of gathered with uh, his followers, his disciples. And so in verse 46, it says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. We've all had arguments like this. And then it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. And so they're having a conversation about who, who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, that is such an uninteresting conversation. An argument and a fight over who gets to be great is so uninteresting to Jesus. And so he brings in a child. And the reason a child is significant isn't because children are like wide-eyed and innocent. It's because in this part of the world, at this period of time, children have no social value. A child cannot return a favor. A child has no capacity to invite you to a party with really important people. Uh, until the general consensus at the time was until a child is old enough to work the family business, a child is only a negative and not a positive. And so the only reason you keep children around is because one, one day they'll be big enough to help out around the house and to earn money or to... to to participate in the economic well-being of the household. And so Jesus says, whoever welcomes a child welcomes me. What he's saying is like, maybe maybe an argument over who does and doesn't get to be great, maybe that 
fully misses the point. Maybe that's actually, that, that argument is a major waste of time. And Jesus says, maybe instead we should be having conversations about who are we offering some amount of grace to and who are we inviting into this conversation. This goes back to what we talked about last week. But then immediately following this, this happens because the, the disciples, having been called out in the way that they have, their response is to change the subject. So in verse 49, it says, Master, said Jaron, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him, which is apropos of nothing. Like John is fully changed. Like they got called out for having an argument over their own greatness. And John's response is, well, hey, listen, I have a whole other thing that's completely unrelated to bring up. And it says, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. So in other words, oh, which by the way, <laughs> this is such a weird story because John says, yeah, we saw this guy driving out demons. And I would assume... I don't have a lot of experience with this, but I would assume that if, if you have fewer demons, it's usually better. So John sees somebody who's driving out demons, which would I, would, I assume in any context is a net positive. And he tells Jesus, like, look, we saw this guy doing this thing and he's not one of us. And so we tried to stop him. So this, and, and the reason this is sort of connected to the thing about the child is because there's, there's sort of this general understanding that the people who follow Jesus have this elevated sense of their own place in reality. And they have the sense of like, we've been a part of this thing. We, we are owed certain things. And Jesus, first of all, says, no, you're not owed any, like th this, this is not a thing, that, that, this is not a story about how you are owed something. And then he brings in the child and then John says the thing about, yeah, but we saw this guy driving out demons, but he's not one of us. Like we never saw him in any of our like group meetings. So we tried to stop him. And so Jesus, here's what Jesus says in verse 50. Jesus says, do not stop him. Jesus says, for whoever is not against you is for you. So what be begins as a conversation about who is great and who isn't, it becomes a conversation about, no, the whole thing. Everybody's invited to be a priest. Jesus says, look, if he's doing good work in the world, don't try and stop him. If he's not against us, he's with us. If he's, if he's doing something that brings goodness into the world, he's also, he's a part of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And your arguments, your, these petty arguments over who's bigger, who's better, who's greater, like this is so, these, are, these arguments are just boring and uninteresting to Jesus. The disciples are hung up on who can and can't bless other people. And Jesus says, why in the world would you stop someone who's doing the work of a priest? So what if, what if Abram had responded like this to Melchizedek? It, it would have missed a, he would have missed a blessing. He would have missed a divine sacred encounter. If when Melchizedek shows up and it begins to bless Abram in the name of El Elyon, if Abram had said, like, whoa, whoa, whoa there, buddy, like, don't get your LLEon juice on me. If he responded like that, then this whole thing would have a whole different trajectory. But he doesn't. Not only does he receive the blessing, he offers a gift in return as, as, a, as an act of gratitude for the blessing. So what if, what if Abram had reacted like the disciples had reacted when they saw the guy casting out demons? Well, yeah, yeah, you would have missed it. So Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Like, there are people out there who are doing holy, sacred work. And if you try and stop them, you're missing it. You're actually in the way a little bit. So, part, by the way, part of Melchizedek's blessing involves bringing out bread and wine. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. Obviously, bread and wine will become deeply symbolic in, a specific, in specific religious rituals, such as like Passover and then later on in Christian tradition, um, the communion. So, so there's a sacred dimension to offering bread and wine along with a the blessing. There, there, there is sort of a sacred um, image to this, but there's also, it, it's also sort of a part of a larger custom because there was a larger custom 
of greeting someone who had been on a difficult journey or at war. And so if someone returns home from a difficult journey or from war, the, the custom would be that you would greet them with something that would be kind of refreshing or sustaining in some sort of way, some kind of bread and wine. If I take a look at the book of Second uh, Samuel, verse 27. So in, or no, sorry, in Second Samuel chapter 17, verse 27. So in Second uh, Samuel 17, it says, uh, says the watchman, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Uh, it says, when David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, son of Nahash, and Rabbah from the Ammonites, and Makir, son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadai, I've never had so many names to read in one sermon, um, from Rogelum, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentil, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for, for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have been exhausted, have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. So there's this whole scene where David and the people who are with him have, um, have, have come back from what is described as a, as a difficult journey. And they're greeted with all sorts of food and, um, and goods, pottery, apparently, as a way of saying, like, you made it. You're home from the journey. And the last thing we're told is they were exhausted from the wilderness. What do we mean when we say exhausted from the wilderness? I really love this language because... Wilderness is often, I mean, this is language that we use now. The wilderness is where a person feels wrung out. The wilderness is a, is a place where somebody feels beaten down or drained or overwhelmed or frustrated and alone. The wilderness is where someone has reached the limits of what they can take before they feel like they're just going to break in half. One of the central questions in the book of Genesis, beginning with chapter 12 with Abram, one of the central questions of the entire book of Genesis is, when we talk about blessing, what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we talk about what it means to be a blessing? I would argue that blessing is what happens when you take whatever you have to offer and you give it to someone who is exhausted from the wilderness. Yesterday, when we were at the, the event at Trinity Harvest, one of the things that they did was, was something called a one-word check-in. And so after a couple of people had, had spoken, and again, it, it was this event where people were uh, kind of lamenting and, and speaking out about um, kind of all the, the thoughts and emotions and feelings of um, what it's like to be a person of color in a world where police brutality is so often not addressed and justice is very rarely served. Um, and so they, they, had, they did this thing called the one-word check-in where people would, like, they would pass around a microphone and people would, or someone would walk around with, with a microphone and just let somebody say, like, what's the one word you're feeling right now? And the number of people who said some variation of, I'm tired, I'm angry, I'm exhausted, I'm afraid. What is this, what are they saying? They're saying, I'm exhausted from the wilderness. I feel like, I feel like I've been living my whole life in the wilderness. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I have nothing left to give. I'm wrung out, I'm, I'm just, I'm completely drained from, from always living in some amount of fear, or of being angry and tired all the time, um, of being afraid to leave my own house for fear that a person whose job it is to protect me might actually hurt me. Yeah, that, that, takes, that takes a real toll on a person. You have, so we have people all over the place right now who are exhausted from the wilderness. The people I mentioned before, people who are working long hours, people who are trying their best to keep other people alive, people right now who are trying their best to keep their businesses afloat, people right now who just have so little to give are exhausted from the wilderness. I would argue 
that to be a blessing is what, what you do for somebody who is exhausted from the wilderness. I saw an article a few weeks ago that talked about how um, people who struggle with like certain mental illness um, struggles right now are on the rise. I mean, obviously, things like anxiety and depression and um, insomnia, like just all sorts of things that, that reveal like there, there, is, there are lots of us who feel like we're kind of collapsing. Like there, there is, there's just not a whole lot to give. People are exhausted from the wilderness in ways that probably a lot of us are not used to even being close to feeling. Offering a blessing to someone is when you leave that person feeling a little bit more understood and a little bit less alone and a little bit more able to face tomorrow. You cannot fix most people's problems, but you can offer them a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. You can offer them grace and peace when they stumble in from the wilderness. You have the power to be a blessing to others. You have the power to offer bread and wine to exhausted, weary people. You don't need permission to do sacred, holy work. You are invited to be part of the order of Melchizedek. You have the power to offer grace and peace, a blessing to anyone who needs it. If you can identify the pain or the fear or the exhaustion of someone else, and you can respond with some sort of bread and wine, then you can do the work of a priest. So may we find ways to be part of the order of Melchizedek. May we not wait for other people to become a blessing. May we, may we find ways to offer some amount of grace and peace, some sort of, some sort of life for those who have been in the wilderness for far too long. May we offer comfort, may we offer hope, may we offer a listening ear, may we be patient with people as they struggle. May we remind people that they're not alone. And whatever that looks like for you, may you find a way to do sacred work. Even in these moments when we're all feeling it, when we're all trying our best and often feeling like we just, we just can't do very much on any given day, may we find some sort of way, even in the smallest of ways, to offer some kind of blessing to others. May we find ourselves part of the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray for us. God, we, we thank you for this invitation to be priests in whatever situation we find ourselves in. May we offer grace and peace to people who are exhausted from the wilderness. May we recognize that there are people in our midst. We have neighbors, we have friends, we have coworkers who have been in the wilderness for a lot longer than we for those who have been the victims of uh, racist practices and policies, for those who are currently struggling deeply with mental health struggles, for those who check in to work every single day, worried that their job won't be there for them, for those who are trying their best to keep their businesses alive, for those who are trying their best to keep their families in one piece, for those who are trying to parent their kids in a way that doesn't traumatize them in these moments. For all of us who are in the wilderness, we pray that we can be priests for one another. We pray that we can offer grace and peace and bread and wine to those who need it the most. May we check in with people who need to be checked in with. May we feel concern and express concern for those who are medically vulnerable right now. May we offer empathy and love and support for those who have lost someone during this time. May we find ourselves 
in the order of Melchizedek. And may we remember that we are always invited to do the work of a priest. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.